was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By, imp- by oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, yet he was put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Kind of a long passage there. But when you heard that, who did you think of? It's the Sunday school answer that everyone gets. Jesus. And in fact, people who aren't even that familiar would go, that's Jesus. We were doing a Bible study recently, and we read this passage, and I said, who do you think that's about? And the person said, Jesus. And I go, are you sure? And they're like, what? Like, for it, I think so. I don't know much about the Bible. And I go, what if I told you that that passage was written 700 years before Jesus? 700 years before Jesus. And all of you heard that and said, oh, that's about Jesus. Or I've heard stories of people who grew up Uh, as a religious Jew in the Jewish faith. And when they read that, they go, oh, that has to be a part of the Christian scriptures because that's clearly about Jesus. And then they find out, wait, no, it's in the Old Testament. It's in the Hebrew Bible. 700 years before And there's item after item as we go through this that you say, that's Jesus. Now, even if there's some people who go, oh, it it wasn't written 700 years before Jesus. It was only written like 400 or 200. I'm like, which I don't think that. I think it's 700. But that's still way before Jesus. So before we dig in, I want you to just stand in awe 
that this was written so far before him that we can take confidence that this was God's plan, that God provided his plan beforehand, and then we saw it work out in the life of Jesus. And we should just stand in awe of that. That's amazing. We can have confidence. Sometimes people think faith is just a jump in the dark, and sometimes it sure does feel like that, that you don't know anything. But there's certain reasons why we can say with confidence, we believe this. So let's start digging in. First uh, 13 of chapter 52 begins and says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Uh, if you remember back a few weeks, which I'm not sure if you do, uh, but we started out and one of those passages started out and said, Behold, my servant. The servant is a character in the book of Isaiah that shows up in these prophecies. And in fact, he shows up four different times. And there's four different songs about this servant. In the first one, it says the servant is going to bring justice. We talked about justice as the setting of things right. That things are messed up and there is going to be a servant who comes like a king like a victor, and set things right. He's going to do away with evil, with oppression. It's a world in which the poor get a fair shake. It's a world in which uh, discrimination is done away with. It's a world in which those who are evil answer for what they've done. It's a world in which there's peace and wholeness and harmony. Basically what we long for. Like any time a politician says, we're going to have prosperity when I get in office, which never happens, but he says it's going to happen. It's tapping into a longing of our hearts. And it says the servant is going to bring justice. He's going to set things right. So this says the servant's going to act wisely, meaning he's going to be successful. He's going to set things right. And it says he's high and exalted. But then verse 14 says, As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So you have two ideas here. You have the high and exalted one, this king, this majestic one that we should be attracted to, that we're like, wow, he's going to bring peace. He's going to make sure the poor get their fair treatment and opportunity he's going to make sure that there's no more discrimination that there's no more evil that evil gets taken care of that things will be set right and we will have wholeness and harmony and this great one that's high and exalted the next phrase says is so marred beyond human semblance i don't know if you've ever listened to someone's story how they came upon someone who went through a horrible accident maybe it was a horrible uh murder maybe it was a horrible just car accident and they come upon the scene and walk up and they say i could not even recognize it as a human it was so marred beyond human semblance that it was far from beyond that of the children of mankind. So here it just starts out and it says, this great one who's going to bring justice is marred. 
is destroyed, is so marked up. And you're like, how do you fit those two things in your head? That the one who is high and exalted, that is majestic, like, is even gone beyond human, like, what a human looks like. So marred. And this passage is about how those two things come together. Up to this point in Isaiah, you've seen, oh, the servant shows up. He's going to bring justice. The servant shows up. He's going to restore God's people. He's going to bring in the Gentiles. Be a light to the nations. Bring people together. You're going to see in the next song, he has some uh, opposition, but he's going to stick with it, that he's going to be faithful to God even in the midst of opposition. And then you get to this final song of the servant, and he's marred. And so you have to be running through your mind, what is going on? He's the one who's supposed to be victorious over all evil. He's the one who's supposed to bring us peace, and look what's happened to him. He's going to have effects on the nations around him. It says, so he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which has not been heard they understand. In verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? I want to camp out on that phrase a sec. Who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? First of all, arm of the Lord. You're like, what does, what does that mean? That means God bearing his strength. So the arm of the Lord is a phrase that they use to talk about God's strength strength and showing that strength and the interesting part is that makes us scratch our head is okay so god's going to show his strength but what's going to happen to the servant in this passage it may not look like strength and that may what is going on again you start out the king who brings justice is marred and then you go god is going to show his strength he's going to begin to reign and what you see after that is weakness. So why is that? It says, who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We're going to see in the next couple of verses that you're going to see something. You're going to say, this is what's going on. And then right after that, they're going to go, actually, this is what's going on. It's something that needs to be revealed to you. That's the basic Christian position, that you can't figure things out from inside yourself. You need something outside yourself to give you direction. You need revelation. That's why we trust the scriptures as a revelation of what God is telling us about himself and his plan and his will. Uh, Every Sunday we read the creed. Uh, before we sing and worship, this is us affirming that we go, we've received a teaching. It's been revealed to us by God. And this is very strange in our culture. Uh, we live in a culture in which, if you've seen any studies about religious affiliation, there's increasingly a number of people who are nuns. What do I mean by saying that people are nuns? Here's what I mean. Uh, usually you think, okay, what religion are you going to align with? Are you going to align with Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, any number of others? And there's an increasing amount of people in our culture who say, I don't align with any of those. I align 
with none of them. So they're called nuns. Not like nuns, like Catholic nuns. Like N-O-N-E-S. So there's, there's not an increasing number of nuns. There's an increasing number of nuns. Okay. So these nuns, a lot of them are just like, I don't know what I think. Some of them, though, I'm going to say, and this is not limited to the nuns. It's lim- Lots of people do it in our culture. It's a self-made spirituality. In that, we say you need to receive something from God, that you need to accept a, a revelation. I'm not talking about a special thing that you may get from God, but that God reveals to you in Scripture, and you have a received teaching that you receive. But some people go, I don't like certain elements of that, so I'm going to put this thing together in the way that suits me. So they're like, I do like the idea that God is love, so I'll take that. But I also like this thing from Buddhism, and I'll take that. And just on my own whims, I'm going to cobble together my own uh, religion. In fact, I I would suggest that if you talk to most people in your workplace, in your neighborhood, they probably have some form of self-made spirituality. That they're like, I don't hold to anything above me. I'm kind of like the final authority on what I believe. So I'm going to put this thing together. So it even happens in Christianity. Christianity, people will say, well, I believe most of that. But if the Bible has anything to say about sex, I'm going to opt out of that. And that's called uh, sexual atheists. In that we believe in God on everything except for when it comes to that. So I'm going to be an atheist when it comes to that. And I'm going to opt out. My point here is that we often like to cobble together our own thoughts and say this is our religion or this is our spirituality. And it's very common. Uh, probably uh, the biggest example would be Oprah. So you, you watch Oprah, and she was recently on one of the late night shows. She quotes a verse and says, delight yourself in the Lord. And then she goes, now the Lord has a very wide-ranging meaning. It can mean any of these things. So basically she says, I like the idea of this verse in the Bible if I get to define it and make it mean what I want it to mean. So that's not anything bashing her. That's a very common thing in our culture in which you can pull things from all over. But what this passage is saying, you need something outside yourself to tell you what's true. That the final authority is not in you. Now sometimes people will say to a Christian who goes, this is the truth This is what I believe, and I believe it with my whole heart. They say, that's arrogant. How dare you say that that's true? Here's what I'd suggest. That it is far more arrogant to say, this is what's true, this is what I think, and that's what I'm going to stick with. And you say, what do you have to base that on? And you say, oh, just me. I just made that up. So they say the person who submits to this teaching they've received that say, well, I'm part of the Christian church, so we've received this. We believe all these things. We believe God has revealed that, so we submit to that humbly. And they say, no, that's arrogant. And you're like, no, 
it's more arrogant to say, me as an individual out of all of these people in the world has the final say on what's true. So you need to be revealed what the truth is. And we're going to see that coming up in the next verse. In 2 and 3, we're going to see the observation of what's going on. So verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant. So this is talking about the servant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So just through our own eyes, you would look at the servant and say, there is nothing remarkable about him. They just say he's like a plant that just grew up or a dry root in dry ground. That it says he has no form or majesty that we should be attracted to him. Remember, it starts out and says, this one is high and lifted up. And then they say, when you see him, no majesty. None at all. Again, you're being tugged at. You're like, what is going on? And it says, no beauty that we should desire him. I don't know if you follow the news, but recently uh, Canada got a new, I think it's prime minister. And all the news, all they would talk about in America was, wow, they have a young, attractive prime minister over there. And he was a good-looking guy. But that's all they could. (laughs) I can't argue. (laughs) But all they could... All they talked about was like, that guy has some beauty there. That guy's attractive. That's a handsome politician and stuff. So the servant comes along who's supposed to bring justice, and they say, you look at him, you go, eh, I, I don't think so. There's no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, it says, he was despised and rejected by men. So the servant that's supposed to bring change and hope, and peace, and justice, and he's rejected. He's despised. He is hated. It says, he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. So this great servant comes. He's rejected. It says he's a man of sorrows. Have you ever met a man of sorrows? Like someone who is filled with sadness, and acquainted with grief. They have lived a hard life. They have many things that have hurt them and pained them and crushed them. And they go, this great servant who's high and lifted up is one who we want to look away from. It's like when you see someone who has are down and out, they might be on the street, they might be homeless, and it's too much to look at, and you avert your eyes. This is a human thing, that we want to avert our eyes from sorrow and grief and pain. That's what's going on with the servant. So the servant turns, we see him, and we turn away. We look away. We avert our eyes. We don't respect him. We don't have concern for him. But then verse 4 comes out, and here's the revelation. You see just bare bones. There's someone who's despised and rejected, has no majesty, no beauty. He's suffered greatly. But it says, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Yet he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for Our iniquities upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. Whoa. 
That's a revelation. That our God does not stand far off and say, that world is full of grief and despair and pain and sin and sorrow. I'm sure we could go around this room and you could each share with me the sorrows from your week, the struggles from your week, the pains from your week, your worries, all the ways that people have wronged you this week or last week, or all the worries about what's going to happen next week. And we would be overwhelmed. There would be many tears shed. We would have great pain. And you would say, wow, there is a lot of pain in our world just in this small group of people. But this passage reveals that the man's suffering was not suffering for his own sorrows, for his own grief, for his own sin, he was suffering for ours. That this God does not stand afar off and aloof to your pain. That he bears your sorrows. Sometimes we want to tell people just get over things. And sometimes there is a time you need to work through something and move on. But our God does not say just get over it. He bears it. He comes in and bears our pain. He gets his hands dirty in our sorrow. Jesus could have come with a silver spoon in his mouth, living a charmed life, but he does not. It says he grew up like a root in dry ground. And Jesus grew up in poverty, displaced. At one point he had to be a refugee and run to Egypt, and then he returned Jesus could have chosen a sweeter path, but what he does is say, I'm going to take on your grief and your sorrow and your pain and your sin. And he comes in and gets his hands dirty. We can never forget this. It says, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. So when you see a man suffering like Jesus did, you have to think in the back of your head, what did he do? He must have had this coming. And it says, we esteemed him stricken. So we see him, and we say, this Jesus had it coming. Clearly, if someone suffered that much, he's clearly guilty. And we do this even day when we see someone face something, we're like, well, must have had it coming. But it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. So in other words, when we say he must have had it coming, we actually mean once we receive the revelation in this next verse, that we must have had it coming. And that's what happens for sinners. And it says, uh, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Chastisement is punishment chastisement. So on Jesus, on the servant, was the punishment that brought us peace. So we long for peace. We long for a world that is set right. But the truth is, in order for God to bring justice to our world, he first has to deal with you. We like to think that God could just set the world right And then we would be really happy with it. 
that we like to point out and say, there's injustice in this world. There's all sorts of things that are wrong. There are all sorts of awful people. And you know who we overlook in that? Ourselves. One of our most enjoyable things is to point at other people's failings and then ignore our own. It's why Jesus says, work out the speck of sawdust in your own eye before you take out before you work, work or take out the log out of your eye before you worry about the speck of sawdust uh, in your neighbor's eye. We like to overlook ourselves in all of this. And what this passage is saying is, in order for the servant to bring justice, he has to deal with you. He has to deal with me. He has to deal with our sin. So the question is, what is he going to do? Now, I'm going to use a science fiction example, so if you don't like science fiction, bear with me for a moment. Uh, Science fiction movies in the future often say we make really smart robots. And then we tell the robots, okay, it's your job to protect us. You're going to keep us safe. You're going to keep the world safe. You're going to keep this Good. And what happens, usually in the programming of a robot's mind, in science fiction movies or stories, is that the robot decides, I'm supposed to keep the earth safe and keep these people safe. And then the robot decides, you know what I need to do in order to keep this place safe? Is kill all the humans. That is what happens in almost every one of these stories. I don't want to give any spoilers for for movies, but... This happens. I could list a number of them. So the robot goes, I need to protect people. What do I need to do to protect people? Well, probably need to wipe them all out to make sure they don't cause any more havoc. So that's from just science fiction. That's not people saying, oh, you know what? Humanity needs to be judged. That for the world to be set right, people need to be judged. But it's tapping into something that is true in our theology. That we deserve judgment. We like to say, not as bad as that person. Well, it's not on a curve. You deserve judgment. And that's not just you. That That's me. We deserve judgment. So we like to think God could set the world right, somehow go, okay, are you along for the ride now? And we'd be like, yeah, but God hasn't dealt with us yet. He needs to deal with us. And God doesn't think like a robot, thankfully, in that he doesn't say, well, let's wipe them out. In order for me to bring peace and justice to the world, he says, no, I'm going to bring judgment, but I'm going to bring the chastisement on the servant in order to bring us peace. That God doesn't say, judge them all. God says, let's bear their griefs. Let's bear their sorrows. Let's bear their transgressions. Let's take them on myself so that they can have peace. And the most important kind of peace is peace with God. That it's Jesus' death on the cross that brings us peace with him. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Sometimes people go, well, 
I'm not the problem. These people are the problem. But this verse wants to come in and say, all we like sheep have gone. Each of us, everyone, has gone their own way. Sometimes I, here's an illustration of everyone going their own way. Sometimes I get stressed about what the proper attire for a situation is. So I'm like, so what am I supposed to wear? Is jeans acceptable? And then I stress out through the entire time if I'm not lined up with what it is. So I understand in previous generations, there was more order to it that you dress this way for a wedding or a funeral, or you dress this way for church, or you dress this. And kind of in our day, it's kind of like a free-for-all. I've gone to uh, funerals, and I go, that's an interesting Budweiser T-shirt you have on there. But I'm not sure that's proper attire for this occasion. So I get stressed. I'm like, what am I supposed to wear? Is jeans acceptable at this thing? Because I don't want to be too low because then I'll be stressed. And also, most people say I'd be more comfortably being too dressed. But I'm also like, whoa, I don't want to be wearing a tie when no one else is. They'll think I'm weird or something. So I say all that to say is there's a way to go. And sometimes in our culture... We don't really, there's not one way. Everyone just does their own thing. And you're like, that's not the way you're supposed to do it. And so there's a phrase people say, I, and they mean different things by this. I'm going to take it in one direction. But they say, we go by the, you walk to the beat of your own drum. Or you go to the beat of your own drum. And now sometimes people say that they're nonconformists and it's a good sentiment. But if I could take that in a different direction, that we all walk to the beat of our own drum in like, in a rebellious way. That God's drum beat started when he created the world and we were called to join in according to that drum beat in that music and move according to that and march or dance or join in on the music according to that. And what we do is we go, no, I'm going to go to the beat of my own drum. I'm going to do my own thing. And when we sin, that's what we're doing. We're saying, I'm going to forge my own path. So when the Bible says certain things about money, we say, I'm going to do my own thing. When the Bible says certain things about sex, we say, well, those rules don't apply to me. I'm going to forge my own way. And any number of things we could say that all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We each choose our own way. And what happens when you choose your own way? Chaos. If you've ever chosen your own way in life, you know the fruits of that and what's happened after that, that it's chaos But it says, even though we've all done that, it says the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7 says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That speaks, again, fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus, when he was crucified, did not really speak Back to his accusers. He was silent. He was willful. He was willingly 
going along with what was happening and willingly laid down his life. Like a sheep before the shears is silent, so was he. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Again, speaks of the situation. There was oppression and judgment with the Romans, with the Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus' death, and he was killed before he had any children. He had no descendants. Verse 9, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, which is exactly what the Gospels tell us happened, that Jesus' burial was with in a rich man's grave. And it says, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Jesus spoke the truth, in fact taught that you should turn the other cheek, that you should love your enemies, that you should go the extra mile with someone who wrongs you. And what does Jesus do when he dies on the cross? He turns the other cheek. He carries his cross. He goes the extra mile and he loves his enemy forgiving them on the cross there's no violence or deceit in him yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days and the will of the lord shall prosper in his hand this verse speaks of the reversal of fortunes. When God offers Jesus, the servant dies as an offering for guilt that he will see his offspring. So another a reversal, a resurrection. It hints at it there, and we know more of it in the New Testament. 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteousness, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Okay, there's a few phrases there as we're closing up. It says, My servant will make many to be accounted righteous. The theme of this has been you need something outside yourself to save you. So you need revelation from God to reveal to you who Jesus is. This says you need righteousness outside yourself because you need to be accounted righteous. You don't need to just attain to a certain level of righteousness that you need to receive this, and that's what Jesus does. He bears your transgressions so you can be called righteous and forgives your sins. It says not only will you be called righteous, it says you will divide a portion with the many and you shall divide the spoil with the strong. That's the language of inheritance and of victory, and he brings us all the benefits of the victory he brings. Remember, the passage was about a king who is a servant who would bring justice, and what Jesus does is he doesn't just achieve that, but he divides the spoil with all of us. We get to be a part of his kingdom and get get to be a part of his reign. Then I want... If we boil down this passage, this last verse is key. It says he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. It makes intercession for the transgressors. Here's this boiled down. 
Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us so that we could be called the righteousness of God. That's a New Testament verse that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. And that's what this passage says, that he accounts us righteous and he was numbered with the transgressors. That means Jesus identified with us. He was numbered with us even though he wasn't one of us. Jesus never sinned, no violence, no deceit, but he identified with you. Not in the sense that he condoned what you've done, but imagine that. The God of the universe, the king who's going to bring justice, the king who is going to bring peace, identifies with you. Jesus got in trouble for this all the time. When Jesus was about his ministry, he would spend his time with all the wrong people. Jesus would spend his time with the tax collectors, who no one likes taxes, but these guys were even worse than our tax collectors. These guys were enemies to their own countrymen. They were traitors. They worked for the empire. Tax collectors and sinners, and prostitutes. Imagine the rumors that are spreading about Jesus as he's going about on his ministry. Do you know who he's spending time with? Do you know who he's eating meals with? And the religious people would say, what is Jesus doing? This is offensive. Like imagine if someone you knew who was highly respected in the religious community, and you're like, who are they hanging out with on Friday night? Who are they spending time with? I'm kind of worried about that. Imagine those rumors spreading about Jesus. Jesus identified with those people. He, Not in that he was like, oh, I'm one of you, as in I'm also a sinner but he came to their side and was with them and came to their aid and helped them and saved them and said, you are welcome into the kingdom of God. Now, you may be here today and say, if you knew what I did, you know Jesus wouldn't spend any time with me. If you know what I've done in my past, you know, ooh, He wouldn't want to be around me. If that stuff got out, his reputation would be ruined. And guess what? Jesus does not care because he comes to bear your sins, bears your transgressors. Even if it was just from what happened last night, Jesus is here to bear your sins and your transgressions and your iniquities far away. Jesus was numbered amongst Sinners, even though he did not commit any sin. And then he says it makes intercession for the transgressors. So what does God do when he responds to the problem of sin in our world, all the pain and the grief it causes? He sends Jesus, who stands on our side and says, they need to be welcomed in to your kingdom because I have bore their sin. It says he intercedes for transgressors. It says he stands on their side and advocates for them. Jesus is for you. This is a powerful good news. I want you to savor that 
good news that Jesus is for you. So often we get it flipped and think the God we serve just can't wait to backhand us, can't wait to show us who's boss, that our God can't wait to go tisk tisk tisk. But this God goes out of his way to bear your grief and sorrow and sin and comes to your aid and stands on your side. So when the devil comes at you and you say, I'm not good enough, I'm not accepted, I, I can't stand in the midst of religious folks. We had a man here a few weeks ago that said, I don't belong here, I don't belong here, I don't belong here, all through the service. And we had someone from our church sitting next to him saying, you do, you do. Because you know who belongs here? Anyone who receives the gospel, which is good news that you are loved, that Christ has bore your penalty, that you can be forgiven, that there is mercy. So there's no one who can come through that door that does not belong because of Jesus. Because he intercedes for transgressors. I don't care how bad of a transgressor that could walk through that door, and we would all be shocked. Like, if if it was as bad as we imagine, and we're like, whoa, that person's like this, this, this. Jesus would intercede for that person and would stand on their side. Not saying, oh, they didn't do anything wrong, but say, I bore their penalty I was in a meeting recently with Dave about urban church planning. It was a great meeting. And in that meeting, the guy speaking says they have a program in which they take uh, ex-cons, train them while they're in prison, get them out, have them join churches, and then plant churches with those former prisoners. And you can imagine people go, wait, well, hold on. That guy's a transgressor. That guy's a lawbreaker. But you know who stands on his side? Jesus. Jesus says, that's my child, and he can plan a church. He can serve people. He can love people. He can lead people. He can be a pastor even, because we believe in redemption. Jesus stands on the side of the worst of us. So you can never say, oh, I'm too bad, or I don't belong, because Jesus intercedes for you. This has been such a blessing to my heart because sometimes I beat myself up. I say, I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. But Jesus intercedes for me and I'm a lawbreaker. I'm a transgressor. He doesn't say, oh, what you did wasn't that bad. He says, no, what you did was horrible, but I've taken care of it. I've bore it. So what I want you to take from this is where do you get your identity? Do you get it from your performance? Do you get it from what you've done in the past? Or are you going to get it from Jesus, who intercedes for you, who bears your pain and your grief and your sorrow? Because you can't get into the kingdom by what you've done. You could be the most religious person here. You could be the person that has done nothing wrong, so to speak. But the reality is you are still in need of something outside yourself to save you. And that's what this passage is about. And I'd encourage you to look at this and notice as you follow Jesus, 
He says, Pick, take up your cross and follow me. That one of the key ways that we follow Jesus is by bearing people's sorrow and grief. That we go to the places where the world is in pain and we bear that up. Whether that be people who are down and out and hurting, whether that be uh, children who don't have parents to take care of them, whatever it might be, go to the places where the world is in pain and follow Jesus. Our calling as we follow him is to bear the sorrow and grief of others. The New Testament says to bear each other's burdens. Sometimes bearing with each other is like, man, that guy is a pain in the neck, and I have to bear with them in love, even though they're driving me crazy. If you are married, you are called to bear with the iniquities and the sins of your spouse. Uh, I, I have my fair share uh, of stuff that I allow Amanda to bear with. But in those relationships, we bear with those things in love. Obviously, we cannot bear sin the way Jesus has, but we bear with each other in love. We go to the places that are in pain, where there is sorrow, where there is grief, and we wrap people up in our arms, however we do that, and bear their pain and care for them and love them. We humble ourselves. We never say we are over things, but like Jesus, who was high and exalted, who suffered to such a lowly point, we say, who, who are we not to humble ourselves? Who are we not to go to the lowliest point to serve those who are in pain and in despair? So two things to take away. Jesus intercedes for you. Jesus bears your penalty. Jesus feels your pain. Jesus is for you. He wants you to change. He wants you to grow but he stands on your side. He doesn't stand on the side of you in a couple years when you get your act together, but he starts right now. And secondly, follow that Jesus. Your identity is found in him, so now you can humble yourself and go to the places of pain and serve with gladness and joy and bear with those things. Let's pray.